0: Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25. It's on page 231 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to use that resource. As you're turning there, I want to publicly thank Daniel Tomlinson for that outstanding message he preached on Psalm 100 last week. Our our church website was down a little last weekend, so I didn't have the opportunity to listen to it uh, until last evening, actually, um, and uh, just took a long walk and listened to that sermon and was so blessed and challenged, uh, convicted, encouraged by it. And uh, what a great reminder uh, in that psalm as we develop our theology of thanksgiving. And as Daniel so well reminded us that the Lord is great. He is good. He is gracious. He is glorious. And to be able to worship the Lord in all our circumstances, whatever we're going through, knowing that this is God's will for us, uh, gives us great liberty and joy in the Christian life. Um, I love also how Daniel showed how this theology of thanksgiving was modeled so well in the life of David. And as as Brother Noble just prayed, David was far from perfect, yet he keeps turning back to the Lord and and conveying praise to him for the awesome God God that he is. David learned the theology of thanksgiving not in a classroom, but in the crucible. It was in this times of testing and trials and suffering that he truly came to know God at a deeper level and to truly love him for the God that he is. And there were more lessons to be learned in David's life in 1 Samuel 25 our text for today, lessons that God wants us to learn as well. Uh, most of us have watched a movie before that begins with a sad scene. Uh, you may not even know what it's about, but as the scene opens, uh, you see a group gathered at a cemetery, and, and they're clearly there for a graveside ceremony, and you, you see the casket. Uh, you see the minister. You see The people gathered around. Perhaps the family is is dressed in black and they're they're dabbing their eyes with tissues as perhaps even a gentle rain falls from the dark overcast skies and pitter-patters on the umbrella. If we can imagine such a scene, it's sort of that sense in which chapter 25 opens with the death of the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel 25 verse 1 says, Now Samuel died And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. The same people who rejected this godly prophet late in his life now mourned for him after his death. Under Saul's leadership, the the people had already begun to pay the price for choosing their own king, rather than the Lord's prophet. And now they lamented the loss of Samuel. One commentator described Samuel as a, as a noble star that shined over the land of Israel. And though in this period of his life, because of Saul's sinful leadership, that, that star had been veiled by clouds of dismay and some clouds of sin, As long as Samuel lived, there was still this beneficial light that shone over the land. And and now with his death, that light was extinguished. The second half of verse 1 says, Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Some texts say Maon, which is more likely because Paran is actually located about 100 miles south of where the events of chapter 25 actually take place. I wonder what David felt like when he received news of Samuel's death. This was yet another loss in David's life. Samuel had been a godly example to him. Samuel had been a faithful friend in his time of need. You might remember that when David first fled from Saul, he found refuge. He found a haven in the very home of Samuel there in Ramah. And now David has been out in the wilderness for a number of years, and and because he still does not trust Saul, he is unable to go to this public funeral for the prophet Samuel. David is still stuck in the wilderness. I find it interesting in terms of the placement of this record of Samuel's death. It occurs at the outset of chapter 25. That's where his death is announced. And I find this significant because it follows Saul's public acknowledgement at the end of chapter 24 of Samuel's pronouncement to Saul back in chapter 15. You remember what Samuel said? He said, by way of judgment on Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And you might recall from our study of 1 Samuel 24 just two weeks ago, that near the end of that chapter, what does Saul confess to David? For the first time, publicly, Saul acknowledges, you are more righteous than I, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Saul is acknowledging the verity of Samuel's pronouncement, of judgment on him years ago. And following Saul's public acknowledgement that Samuel's prophecy will surely become true, the prophet of the Lord finally dies. This is a series on David, not on Samuel. But we want to acknowledge from the Scriptures that Samuel, though like David not perfect, was a true godly prophet of the Lord faithful. 1 Samuel 3.19 says, the Lord was with Samuel and let none of his words fall to the ground. That is to say, Samuel was a true prophet. God fulfilled every single thing that Samuel prophesied, including the fulfillment of this prophecy concerning David, something that Samuel himself would not live to see the day that David would become king over Israel, but it would surely come to pass. But for now, David was still out in the wilderness. When I was a little boy around five years old, uh, many of you know that I was actually born here in Webster. My my dad was a member of this church before my uncle was pastor in the early uh, 70s, actually throughout most of the 70s. And Uh, from 71 to 81. But anyway, my dad worked for Xerox, and we moved by the time I was one year old. He got transferred to Connecticut, then to California. So we were living in California when I was five years old, and it was that same year in my life that I had trusted Christ as my Savior, and uh, we were attending a church plant there um, in a suburb of Los Angeles. And I remembered as a small congregation gathered, there was such a vibrancy with the folks in, and they loved to sing together. And And Daniel talked about the importance of singing corporately last Sunday as we studied Psalm 100. Uh, But I loved Sunday evenings because at the Sunday evening service, the the pastor who led the singing would actually take song requests from the congregation, from the hymn book or a chorus that they had known. And uh, my favorite chorus at the time... At age five, was "My Lord knows the way through the wilderness." Any of you uh, know that chorus? Okay, a few of you, and uh, it was my favorite chorus. And and on the way to church that night, I told my folks, you know, I hope we sing, "My Lord knows the way to to, through the wilderness tonight." And uh, unbeknownst to me, my parents had conveyed to the pastor my request. Remember, I'm just five years old at the time. So midway through our time of singing. The pastor said, and our next song uh, comes by, uh, is, has been requested by Matthew Fletcher. So we're going to sing, My Lord Knows the Way Through the Wilderness. And I was so uh, red-faced and embarrassed at the public mention of my name. I remembered as the congregation sang my favorite chorus, I didn't sing, but just kept my head buried in my mom's lap the entire time. I think back on that memory but I can't tell you how many times over the years that chorus has come to my mind. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness, all I have to do is follow. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness, all I have to do is follow. Strength for today is mine all the way and all that I need for tomorrow. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness, all I have to do is follow. You know, as a five-year-old, it was so easy to sing that chorus, but it sure is tough to live it, isn't it? Especially when you're out in the wilderness, it's a lot easier to sing a chorus like that. It's a lot easier to say that my Lord knows the way through the wilderness, all I have to do is follow, than to actually believe that and act on it when you're in the wilderness. The wilderness, because of its natural challenges, has become a symbol of severe testing, of isolation, of deprivation, of exposure to evil. And that's what David experienced. Those who love the Lord can tend to lose sight of Him when they're going through the wilderness if they're not careful. And David was no exception. Here in chapter 25 we'll see that David's buttons get pushed and he begins to act impetuously in a moment of outrage. He almost takes matters into his own hands. Indeed, he would have done so. Had he taken the course of action that he had decided upon that he was going to do, it would have had disastrous, horrendous consequences. And yet God in His mercy graciously intervened and kept David from sinning. And God did this by working through Abigail, the woman who got in the way. 1 Samuel 25, that's the title of today's message, the woman who got in the way. There are many lessons that can be gleaned from 1 Samuel 25, but the main takeaway, what I call the transformative truth that should should grip us, should convict us, but also encourage us and motivate us, and and most of all change us, is this. God graciously uses people as stop signs on our path towards sin. I want you to think about that for a moment. We'll see how it played out in this episode in the life of David. When our conscience refuses to kick in, When we're acting impulsively and foolishly and stupidly in the heat of a moment. When we don't respond as we should, God at times will graciously put people in our path to keep us from doing something stupid. Something sinful. Something that could have horrific consequences. And that's how God used Abigail in David's life. First, we're going to look at the incident that tempted David to sin, that, that sort of incited him, if you will, to act impulsively and foolishly and even violently. And then we'll look at how God intervened in this situation through Abigail. And of course, along the way, we'll consider application for us. So if you're following along in your bulletin, there's an outline there. This first section I've entitled, despicable ingrate that's who we encounter in verses 2 to 11 a despicable ingrate named Nabal look at first Samuel 25 verses 2 to 11 and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel Carmel was just a mile or two north of Maon There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and and they'll tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Well, simply by reading this text, we can already tell this guy Nabal's a first rate jerk. I find it interesting in comparing the opening of chapter 24 and the opening of chapter 25. King Saul has 3,000 soldiers. Nabal has 3,000 sheep. I think there's a a point of connection there because both are men of means. And yet they use their means to serve themselves rather than others. As Saul is actively trying to hurt David, whereas Nabal refuses to help him and even hurls insults at him. Now as we look at this, as we're picturing this This scene, we must not um, have our our vision of what David is doing here tainted by maybe some movies and TV shows we watch or things we read in the news. David was not some kind of a mob boss providing protection uh, to people in a town uh, and charging them a fee for his services. I know it may sort of look like that. Because of the culture that we live in and things that we might watch on television or in the movies or hear about in the news. We need to understand the culture of this day. Uh, Think about it. This man had 3,000 sheep and he had a whole team of shepherds that was watching over them. And it was common as they were out in the wilderness tending to these thousands of sheep if you were responsible for all the sheep of a wealthy individual that travelers would come by and they would dwell with them and they would actually help to protect them and watch over them, not just the sheep, but also the shepherds who themselves at times were exposed to danger. And so when it came time for the shearing, if these men had been there for a while providing a legitimate service, it was expected that they would get something in return. And usually it was provisions for the body. It could have been clothing or food, some kind of shelter to meet their needs. And so the wealthy owners would set aside a portion of the profit they made from those sheep and would give, as it were, a generous tip to those who had protected their shepherds and their sheep. This token of thanks was was not required, but it was expected as a common act of courtesy. If you're picturing something in our culture that would be very much akin to what this was, think of tipping a waiter or waitress at a restaurant. Uh, it's not required, you're not bound by law as it were to tip them, but it's the cultural courtesy to do. It's common, you're considered a jerk if you don't do that, if they have provided you with a good service. But instead of feeding David's men food, he feeds them insults despite their good service in their gracious greeting. Three times they wish peace upon him, his household, and all that he has. Nabal is demeaning and snarky when he says, should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have provided for my shearers and give it to men who come from who knows where? He gives the impression that David is a a no-good runaway. He's a a nobody. He's a good-for-nothing And so are the men who are with him. Nabal is not only selfish, insensitive, and rude, he is a moral, spiritual, social disaster. With his harsh and vitriolic words, he demeans David's person. He insults his character. He humiliates his men who have served him well. And as you might expect, this did not sit well with David. Now we move to point two, David's indignation. Look at verses 12 and 13. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. Then David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. In verse 6, David greets Nabal by wishing him shalom three times. And now here in verse 13, the word sword appears three times, emphasizing the change in David's demeanor. He is no longer wishing this guy peace. He's about to pierce him with the sword. He now intends to do him harm. Uh, Later on in the chapter, verses 21 and 22, we're told precisely what David had in mind. Verses 21-22 Now David had said Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow in, has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Clearly David is acting impetuously violently. And I thought, I'm sure being hungry didn't help. I was reading my sermon to my wife last night. She said, honey, no, there's an actual term for that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, it's called being hangry. Have you heard of that term? Hangry? It's like you just get extra angry when you're hungry. And such was the case with David and the hundreds of men who were with him. The word sword again appears three times, and this indicates not only a change in David's demeanor, one of going from one of peace to hostility. It not only reflects the change in David's demeanor, but now also his dependence on armed force. We're seeing a side of David come out that we really haven't seen up to this point. He's angry, he's fed up, he's frustrated. And he's not going to take this lying down. He's going to send a message to Nabal that's going to be deadly in its characterization. And this, this wasn't typical of David previously. Even back in chapter 17, when David kills Goliath and even cuts off his head with Goliath's own sword, David says something very important in that chapter before he kills him. As the Philistine and Israeli armies are gathered together, do you remember what David said? He said, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hands. What happened to the David we saw then? Or the David we saw even in the previous chapter when His conscience cut him simply for cutting off a corner of King Saul's robe. I find it so ironic that in that instance, literally the previous chapter, David refused to touch the man who wanted to kill him. And now he wants to kill the man who refuses to tip him. Brothers and sisters, what a warning that is to us. Sometimes it's after overcoming a huge temptation that we can cave in like that to a much smaller one. Saul had hounded David at this point for years now, wanting to kill him, and David won't touch him. And now you have a man that hurls insults at David, simply refuses to help him, and David is ready to kill him. And not just him, but all the males in his household. David is about to turn Carmel into another knob. Do we see this? He's experiencing, he is expressing the same irrational rage that Saul did in a previous chapter. We might look at this and be perplexed. And if we are perplexed over the drastic change in David's temperament, then we have yet to perceive the fickleness in our own hearts. Isn't it true that we can be filled with the Spirit one minute and then energized and angered by the flesh the next minute? Doesn't James talk about this? Not in the portion that Tom and Sarah read a few moments ago, but later on in that same letter, he says, Out of the same mouth, precedes blessing and cursing. How can we be in church one moment, praising God, praying, saying amen, and yet right after the service, be gossiping about someone, be complaining about something, making a nasty remark on Facebook or some other social media outlet, being snarky and demeaning even in our family conversations with one another, We are so like David. That ought to convict us, but it should also encourage us because there is hope for sinners like us. People who can act so fickle at times. Serving God one minute, serving ourselves the next. Walking in the spirit, walking in the flesh. So duplicitous at times. Someone says or does something that sets us off. And we who were worshiping God just a moment ago can lash out with, with angry words or, or do something that reveals our violent temper, displaying irresponsible actions, reckless behavior. The reason David didn't respond rightly to Nabal's taunts is because David was in the energy of the flesh at this moment. And any time a person is controlled by the flesh rather than the spirit, he is susceptible to all sorts of sin, even the sin of irrational rage. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Here we are told, no psalm being written here, David never stopped to pray or to ponder what to do. Focusing on the greatness, the goodness, the graciousness and gloriousness of God as we were told last week, as we see so often in the Psalms. David's not thinking about this. He's not really thinking at all. He simply acts impulsively. He does what comes naturally. He immediately grabs his sword. He tells all his men to take up their swords. And he's going to go kill this guy. Again, he's about to turn Carmel into another knob, a place of massacre. But thank God that didn't happen. Thank God for the woman who got in the way. Thirdly, we see divine intervention. When our conscience doesn't kick in, the Lord at times will graciously use other people to keep us from sinning. In this case, God used Abigail, who ironically was the wife of Nabal. I've broken this this third major point down into a few different sections. The first one is the report. The report in verses 14 to 17. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us and we suffered no harm and we did not miss anything while we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against our master and against all his house and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. And we should note that the servant comes to Abigail instead of Nabal. Because he knows that she is approachable. He knows that she will listen, whereas this guy is unapproachable. He's not teachable. He doesn't listen to sound counsel. He's a stubborn fool, and he knows it. And his wife knows it, because the servant actually says that to his wife. James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. Nabal was the very opposite of that, which is why he was called fool. But Abigail's wife was very wise. She was approachable and showed herself to be prudent. By the way, I doubt that Nabal's parents, when when he was born, rocked him in his arms and said, oh, isn't he cute? Let's name him Fool. I suppose they could have. I doubt they did. I think this was the name that he earned over the course of his life. Everybody knew him as a fool. Oh, Nabal, oh yeah, the fool, the jerk, the senseless person, The, the guy who thinks only about himself. That was the nickname that he had earned in life. Sadly, everybody knew what a jerk he was, including his wife. But instead of conspiring against her husband, she immediately acted to protect him, as well as their household. So we move from the report to the rescue. Look at verses 18 to 20 of 1 Samuel 25. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. The first thing Abigail does here is fix David and his men a feast. She, as it were, gives them the generous tip that they should have received from Nabal in the first place. It dawned on me as I read that, even back then, Women knew that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. (laughs) Abigail didn't tell Nabal what she was doing. And in this situation, it was the right move. How do we know that? Because scripture itself affirms in verse 3 that Abigail was discerning. She sized up the situation and said, What is the wisest thing to do, all things considered? She was wise enough to know that it was in her husband's best interest for her to act without his knowledge and yet in his favor. She was literally saving his life. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet. Abigail's husband was an arrogant fool, but here Abigail shows herself to be a humble servant. Her body language showed this through her posture and through her demeanor. You now, I paused on that verse before moving on in, in my study of the verses that follow, because I just thought for a moment how important body language is in communication. There have been huge studies actually done on this. Body language is the unspoken part of communication that we use to express our feelings, to show the heart behind our words, as it were. Nonverbal cues such as our facial expressions, our, our gestures, our posture, all play a part in communicating the complete message we want to send. Some communication experts assert that only 7% of a message is conveyed through words, whereas 93% is conveyed through our body language. That's why it's a bad idea to try to resolve conflict through email, through text, but people do it all the time. It's easier to hide behind your phone or a computer than to meet with someone face-to-face and speak the truth in love, to have that awkward conversation. But I think most people understand instinctively the importance of body language because even in our texts and emails, you notice how people use those, what are they called, emojis more and more? What facial expression on Google or Facebook best conveys kind of what I would want them to see in me at this moment? Here's how I want my words to come across. I think those are becoming prolific even in business communication, official business, because people are understanding the importance, even maybe subconsciously, of body language, of nonverbal communication. Boy, Abigail was so discerning. And before she ever says a word to David, she just communicates humility. She communicates vulnerability. She communicates preference. She communicates respect. She communicates graciousness. You wished us peace. I'm here to make peace. Having seen what she did in verse 23, let's look now at what she said in verses 24 to 31. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Her husband was the jerk. But she's making peace here. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that He has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for Himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Boy, I find it difficult to even elaborate On Abigail's eloquence. Her words are so beautiful. They're so powerful. Despite her husband's foolishness, she takes on the responsibility. She speaks the truth as it is. But I think one of the most important things she does here, did you catch it? She graciously and discerningly puts David's focus back on God. You see that? She knew that David had lost sight. And and I love what she says. She actually predicts a positive outcome. You're not going to do this. Remember, she's bowing before David. He still has his sword with a few hundred guys behind him with their sword strap. That's where they're going. But she predicts, you're not going to do this. Because the Lord is with you and you're not going to avenge yourself. God is going to make you king and you're not going to have any cause for regret because you're not going to work your salvation for yourself. God will sling away your enemies like a stone coming out of a sling. Why would she pick that analogy? What a wise, gracious, beautiful woman. Things are moving swiftly in a bad direction. But Abigail, through her gracious demeanor and wise words, persuades David to change course. I love what Joyce Baldwin writes. She points out that Abigail refers to David as my Lord 14 times in the Hebrew text. She says, she refers to David as my Lord, speaking as a, as a handmaid to her Lord. But make no mistake, Abigail's the master of this situation. She's the one that really is thinking wisely and has things under control because she's being directed by the Lord. Abigail's speech is the hinge and the turning point of this story. If Abigail had not come, if she had not acted the way she did and spoken in the manner she did, this could have gone in an entirely different direction, as well as the remaining narrative of David's life. Yes, of course, God is sovereign. God is providentially moving in David's life. But God uses real people in real circumstances to make a real difference, to stop people from real sin that suffers from which they would suffer real tragic consequences. Her speech, her intervention is the turning point of the story. The very turning point of how the rest of David's life could have panned out. Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Isn't this proverb illustrated perfectly in the examples of Nabal and Abigail? Nabal in a bad way, Abigail in a good way. Nabal's harsh words ignite David's anger. They fire him up. They set him off. There's people like that. They, They bring out the worst in others because they're contentious people. Stay away from them have nothing to do with angry people because the Bible says if you associate with them, you'll become like them. Nabal's a fool. He ignited David's anger, but Abigail's soft answer diffused it. Diffused the situation. Consider David's response in verses 32 to 35. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. See, where's his focus? Back on the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition." His focus is back on God. David clearly sees Abigail's gracious intervention as the Lord's doing. That God used Abigail to keep David from blood guilt. He acknowledges this. He thanks God for her. Through her wise, humble, godly words and actions, Abigail was greatly used of the Lord and she rightly earned David's respect. A respect that, sadly, her husband never gave her. She had more wisdom in this crisis, certainly than Nabal, but even more than David. Nabal didn't recognize the gift he had in his wife. But David rightly saw her for the blessing that she was and told her so. David did what her husband should have done, David's son Solomon wrote in Proverbs nineteen fourteen, houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. The husband of the virtuous, godly woman in Proverbs thirty one, rises up and praises her. Husbands, do you commend your wives for their godly character? for their humble service, for the times that they stuck by you when you were acting really stupid, sinful? What about other believers who love God and love you enough to keep you from acting impetuously and from paying the price of your own stupidity? God graciously uses people as stop signs on our path towards sin. I chose that graphic language intentionally. Picture you on a road towards sin. This is what I'm doing. Just as David was. He was going to do it. He was already set in direction. Mind made up people with him. This is what we're doing. And God graciously used Abigail as a stop sign. You're not going to do this. And you're going to live without regrets. God is going to be faithful to His Word and you are going to obey Him and you will be blessed as a result. What a blessing. God uses people as stop signs on our path towards sin. And I would say especially sins that result from impetuous decisions and actions based on anger. The desire for revenge, for payback in the moment, from taking matters into our own hands because we're offended and we want others to pay for how they treated us. Romans twelve nineteen, again we looked at this last week. Beloved never avenge or two weeks ago, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This quote in Romans twelve nineteen is actually a Citation from the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18. The law of Moses which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Because he deserves it? No. Because I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Not you. You leave it to me. David would have known this scripture. This principle that was written 500 years before his lifetime. David knew this scripture, and Abigail graciously reminded him of that. Thanks to Abigail, David not only recalled this principle, but he applied it in this situation when he was ready to act very differently. David began by taking this matter into his own hands, but thanks to Abigail, he left the matter in the Lord's hands. And God dealt with Nabal in a decisive manner. He killed him. Look at the repayment in verses 36 to 38. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Scripture says in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from this flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. God's judgment on Nabal is a real-life illustration of the truth stated in these verses. When Abigail tells her husband what she did, now notice first, she couldn't tell him that night because he was drunk. Couldn't even speak to him, not only because he was a fool, but also because on this occasion he was inebriated. Couldn't talk any sense with him. So she's like, he's really not going to hear or remember anything I have to say till tomorrow. So when the wine had gone out of him by the next morning, she tells him what she did. Which is basically, I saved your life. And I did it by just feeding David and his men. And his heart died within him. The Bible says it stood still. He had some sort of a cardiac arrest, uh, some sort of a stroke or whatever. I find it interesting. It says, and ten days later, the Lord struck him. I'm not saying that God didn't do something similar to that here, but it doesn't attribute it directly to God. You know what I think? I think when... Nabal heard that they actually got tipped for their service. He was so angry and outraged and, and that he went apoplectic and he literally had a heart attack or suffered a stroke because an act of kindness was done toward this man whom he had insulted about the uh One commentary brought out such a good point. It says he suffered a heart attack, a stroke over what? Think about what he suffered this stroke over. Over a negligible loss, the loss of various perishables and exactly five sheep out of his 3,000. But those were so important to him, it's my sheep, it's my meat, it's my bread, they're my servants, and to have anyone enjoy any of it against his will, just he just literally couldn't take it. So he suffers a heart attack, a stroke, his heart stands still, and ten days later after suffering, the Lord says, enough of you, and just kills him. Notice the next two verses in Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. wonder what it was like for Abigail living with a fool all those years. Someone that you couldn't even talk to, that would never listen to counsel or advice, no matter how good and humble and faithful you were to them. Or from David's standpoint, I'm so tired of being isolated and burdened and challenged and tested and tried and exposed to all sorts of dangers and evils in this wilderness. What does scripture say? Don't become weary in doing good. For in due season, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. That's what Abigail did. And she was blessed as a result. Look at the reward in verses 39 to 42. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. And he has kept back his servant from wrongdoing." The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. To borrow the words of the author of Hebrews, God was not unjust to forget Abigail's work and her labor of love. God was faithful to reward her. Do you remember Abigail's last words in her appeal to David? She said, and when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. He sure did. He not only remembered her, he married her. Is Hannah Leary here? Hannah, you here? Hannah, was that our... Uh, Karen Disciples Class Wednesday night, and after class, I congratulated her on her engagement to Andrew Smith. Obviously, not our missionary Andrew Smith, he's married to Anna, but another Andrew Smith, godly young man. And as she was recounting this, this episode that occurred over Thanksgiving weekend, I said, You know, so tell me what happened. And she kind of gave me the, the blow by blow and said, and when, Then when he popped the question, my response was, Yes, yes, yes. I thought, Abigail here shows this same readiness and enthusiasm to marry David. It says, she hurried and rose to meet him. Joyce Baldwin notes, Abigail is more than glad to be marrying a man that she can respect, one with whom she has much in common. Yeah, I would agree that David had met his match in Abigail because she too was a woman after God's own heart and by God's grace helped to make sure that David stayed that way. In this passage, Abigail's example puts her husband to shame, and she even outshines David in this instance. But brothers and sisters, we all know there is one who shines more brightly yet. He is the root and offspring of David, He is not only a noble star, he is the bright morning star. As Revelation 22.16 reminds us, he is, as the angels announced, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Hebrews 12.3 tells us as believers, as we're going through hard times, when people insult us, mistreat us, abuse us, it says in Hebrews 12.3, think of all the hostility he endured From sinful people, then you won't become weary and give up, or you won't get mad and give in to sinful impulses. Because Jesus responded rightly, we can be reconciled to God completely. Isn't that the good news of great joy for all people? The God of peace has made this known to us, true shalom, that's the message that the angel of the Lord announced to shepherds in the field on that very first Christmas Eve. And that message still holds true today. I often think of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. If you're familiar with Paul's past, you know that he was a religious terrorist. He was capturing Christians and putting them to death or putting them in prison. He was on the war path against God's people. So much so that when Jesus encountered Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so the point of this verse is that the worst sinner, by his own admission, is already in heaven. And the indication is that every other sinner can get in line behind him. The Lord Jesus Himself, on the very last page of Scripture, says, Whoever will come and drink freely from the water of life. Not only, you know, sinners in this classification or this classification, but all sinners everywhere, whoever is willing, come. The invitation throughout Scripture and even by Jesus Himself on the final page of Scripture is come. People joke today about a coming to Jesus moment. But a true coming to Jesus is no joke. It is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between salvation and damnation. If you believe in your heart truly that Jesus is the Son of God who died to pay the penalty for your sins, and He rose victoriously from the grave proving that He had conquered sin and death and Satan for you, you really believe that and you, like Abigail to David, like bow before him and you respect him for who he is as the Lord God, as the one who saves, then he will save you. You will be his. You will be reconciled to God. You will be adopted into the family of God. You will be indwelt with the Spirit of God. And you will enjoy fellowship with God for all eternity. You have God's own word on that. And God is always true to His word. So if you have not by faith yet come to Jesus, we urge you to have a come to Jesus moment. And if it's a true come to Jesus moment, then you will be, keep coming to Jesus every moment for the rest of your lives because He is the bread of life. We feast on Him. So come to Jesus. That's the first step. Believe and be baptized as a pro- public profession of your faith in Christ. And once you come to Jesus, I think the message from 1 Samuel 25 here is, then come alongside others. Come alongside others. One of the best ways to do this is to be an active, engaged member of a local church such as this. Why do believers gather together? Why do we worship God publicly? Why do we worship God corporately instead of just privately here and there and everywhere? It's because when we come together as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, as we sing to one another, as we pray with one another, as we serve with one another, as we encourage one another, as we build up one another, as we warn one another, as we admonish one another, then we keep one another from sin. And we spur one another on to love and good works the direction that God wants us to go. So as we close, let me ask, who has God placed in your path to keep you from sinning? Are you listening to that person in your life? Or those persons? Are you like David, approachable and teachable? Or are you like Nabal? People don't even bother talking to you because you're an arrogant fool who doesn't listen to anybody. Better yet, let's be like Abigail, who by God's grace was a sin stopper, a peacemaker, a lifesaver, a faith builder, a true encourager. Do you not only listen when other people come to you, but you take an active role and come alongside others to encourage them and when necessary to confront them To speak the truth, yes, but in a loving, winsome way because you truly care and want God's best for this person. As I was talking to my wife about this text this past Thursday afternoon, Ruthie said, One thing I appreciate about Abigail is that while she did give thought to what she was doing, she wasted no time in doing what needed to be done. That's a great point on which to close. Don't just listen to God's Word. Do what it says. And don't wait. The Bible says to him who knows to do right, but does it not to him it is sin. Delayed obedience is disobedience. However God is speaking to you in this hour, don't just listen. Do what Scripture says. Do it now and you'll be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for yet another vital lesson we learned from the life of David. We trust your Holy Spirit to apply this message to each of our hearts as you will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.